The strange but true stories featured on this podcast contain details some people may find unsettling. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chayaz Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello there, welcome to our fourth instalment of Weird Fix. These are the mini-episodes that sit neatly between our full-length stories, where I fill you in on some of the shorter strange but true tales I stumble across. There'll also be a weird fact at the end too, and I have a fascinating combination of topics for you today. I'm going to jump right on into it with a news story that I recently found, but that actually came out around 10 years ago. I was looking up bizarre incidents that have taken place in Manchester for a talk I did a couple of weeks ago, and I knew I had to share this one with all of you too. So here we go. Back in 2013, something very odd indeed took place at the Manchester Museum, absolutely baffling staff working in one of the exhibits. Not only were the museum curators perplexed, but it captured the attention of everyone from Professor Brian Cox to television producers at ITV. And it was all to do with an item in their collection dedicated to ancient Egypt. A 10-inch tall statue which was discovered within a mummy's tomb and dates all the way back to 1800 BC. Now, if we learned anything from the 1999 film The Mummy, it's that it's not a good idea to mess with mummies. So when something strange started to happen to this small statue, I'm sure it made even the most sceptical curator sit up and pay attention. Although the statue was carefully housed inside a locked, clear display case, staff would regularly come to look at the item and find that it was facing the wrong way. And it wasn't just one way that it would turn, it would be found at every angle when absolutely no one had been anywhere near it. No other items in the case had moved and everything around it was entirely undisturbed apart from this one piece. I'm going to put a photo of it up on our Instagram page so you can see for yourself how the movement progressed. It's so creepy. An Egyptologist working at the museum at the time gave an interview to the Manchester Evening News describing what he'd experienced with the statue. He said, quote, I noticed one day that it had turned around. I thought it was strange because it is in a case and I am the only one who has a key. In ancient Egypt, they believed that if the mummy is destroyed, then the statuette can act as an alternative vessel for the spirit. Maybe that is what is causing the movement. Oof, it's spooky. So the team did what any of us would logically do and set up a video recording to try and get to the bottom of the mystery. And in a way it helped, but at the same time, it was still very creepy. The time-lapse showed the statue spinning around 180 degrees and confirmed that no one had been near it to physically move it. Imagine being the person in charge of that collection at the time. I know I would have been looking over my shoulder at all times, wondering what it was doing. It gives me the shivers. So what on earth was happening? Well, with strange but true stories in general, it's rare that we end up with a full scientific explanation. But in this case, thanks to the dedicated folks over at the Manchester Museum and ITV, this mystery was eventually solved. 
In 2013, there was an ITV series called Mystery Map, where, you guessed it, they tried to solve mysteries. Just throwing it out there, if there was ever going to be a reboot, I would like to throw my hat in the ring to present it. Anyway, as part of the show, a scientific investigation was ordered at the museum to try and figure out why the statue was turning. And if you happen to live in Manchester in 2013, like I did, there's a chance that we may have been part of the explanation. So here's what was uncovered. Thanks to a special sensor that was placed under the wall-mounted cabinet, it was found that at 6pm, when there was a lot of vehicle and foot traffic around the museum thanks to people leaving work, there was a huge increase in the vibration level on the ground around the building. When these vibrations were high, the statue was also seen moving. The measured vibrations then decreased overnight, as did the movements of the statue. When the vibrations picked back up again around 7am the next morning as the city came alive, the statue slowly began to rotate. But why was it only this object that moved in the cabinet when nothing else did? Well, as it turns out, the statue has a slightly convex base with a sort of lump at the bottom, meaning it doesn't sit totally flat. This would make it more prone to being rotated by vibrations. This is pretty much in line with the theory that Professor Brian Cox put forward at the time too, as he thought the answer must have something to do with some kind of friction between the statue and the shelf. Not everyone is convinced though, and at the time, many ancient Egypt enthusiasts spoke out, saying they still believed some magical forces were at work. But from an official standpoint, the mystery is considered solved. Although the scientific explanation does make sense, of course, I still think I'd be keeping half an eye out if I were ever alone around that particular collection. Next, with Christmas being imminently upon us, I thought I'd do a little extra digging into one of my favourite festive facts. If you've listened closely to the lyrics of the Andy Williams song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year Lately, you may have noticed the line that mentions, quote, there'll be scary ghost stories. I was going to sing it for you, but I don't want to ruin a classic. That wouldn't be very Christmassy of me. Anyway, I'm sure that most paranormal enthusiasts amongst us will already know that the telling of ghost stories is traditionally a Christmas pastime, which was particularly popular around the Victorian period, but what you may not know is why this came about. So let's have a look at some of the possible explanations for this frankly brilliant former festive activity, which I'm very much in favour of bringing right back. Many folklore experts, including Sara Cleto, believe that this tradition was around far before the Victorians fell in love with it, and has spoken about how the winter solstice has been a time where people have exchanged spooky tales with one another for centuries, within different countries and cultures across the world. It's often been pointed out that the reasons for this were likely, one, because in the absence of electricity, people would pass the long, dark nights by gathering together around the fire, and stories 
these are a great way to keep an interesting conversation going. And secondly, because a person being able to retell a story that they'd heard didn't hinge on them being able to read, so it was something that was accessible to most people. There are mentions of the popularity of telling dark tales in the coldest months in works like Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, with the line, A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. But things really kicked off for Ghost Stories' Yuletide Association with the publication of arguably one of the most famous British novellas of all time, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I mean, it really is the perfect mixture of both topics, and it was just one of the shorter stories Dickens had published which involved both Christmas and ghosts. With the Industrial Revolution also taking place around this time, and the steam-powered printing press becoming more widely used, the writers penning these stories could more easily see them printed in the periodicals. As more and more people became illiterate and were able to regale their friends with these printed spooky tales, they continued to become a December staple. In fact, many writers would make sure that they had new ghost stories ready to print in time for Christmas, when people would naturally gather together more frequently. I personally think this sounds brilliant, and I've loved seeing a bit of a revival of the spooky but festive genre in the past few years, thanks to shows like Inside Number 9 and the upcoming adaptation of A Ghost Story for Christmas, which is going to star Kit Harrington, I believe. I met him once, he was a very nice man. Of course, many people cite the rise in the popularity of celebrating all things spooky in October for the decline in the Christmas ghost story tradition, which makes sense, but I would love to see it become the norm once more. I'm going to roll out the line I've said several times on the podcast now because I absolutely stand by it. This is the perfect example of my sentiment that ghost stories are for life, not just for Halloween. To finish off with, I have a sweet little piece of trivia for you, quite literally, which I found interesting for a couple of reasons. Now, if you ever said to me that I had to choose between chocolate or sweets and I could only have one of them for the rest of my life, I would choose sweets in a heartbeat. I'm talking like hard-boiled candies, cola laces, licorice, flying saucers... I absolutely love sweets. I am such a big kid, it's ridiculous. Anyway, since I was a kid, I have always loved Chupa Chups. Or as I believe it's pronounced in the US, Chupa Chups or Chupa Chups? Regardless, the cola ones are my favourite, but I've always loved finding unusual flavours and seeing the really unique wrapper designs too. The logo is particularly iconic, that yellow and red scalloped edge daisy-like design that looks almost as if it's a sticker planted on top of each lolly. But this super recognisable logo wasn't drawn up by a designer off the back of a marketing meeting. No, no, no. It was in fact created by none other than Salvador Dali or Dali, if we're pronouncing it properly. Yes, the same surrealist artist who painted all of those incredible melting pocket watches and surreal landscapes. 
Chupa Chups is a Spanish brand, and in 1969, when the company's owner was looking to launch their lollies internationally, they wanted to head out there with a fresh new logo, and who better to design it than a world-famous Spanish artist? As the story goes, it took Dali under an hour to get the logo just right, and after doodling for a while, he drew the final design on a bit of newspaper. That same logo is used to this day. I mean, if Salvador Dali himself was your branding artist, why would you ever change it? This is interesting in itself, of course, but the secondary element of this that I find weird is that Dali was working at the same time that Chupa Chups were invented. It feels weird, like the fact that Pablo Picasso and Eminem were both alive at the same time, even if it was for under a year. Dali actually only passed away in 1989, but clearly left a huge legacy. I know I will never eat a Chupa Chup without thinking of a liquefied clock ever again. Thank you so much for joining me today for episode four of Weird Fix. I hope you found the stories interesting. Some super quick shout outs to my sources. We had a Manchester Evening News piece about the spinning statue by Andrew Stewart from November 2013. A History.com article by Elizabeth Yuko about Christmas ghost stories from December 2021. And another from the Smithsonian Magazine by Colin Dickey from December 2017. Finally, we had a piece from the online version of eSlogan magazine, all about that Chupa Chups logo. If you spot anything that you think would make a good addition to our next Weird Fix episode, please do let me know. You can find us on Instagram at Things Get Weird Podcast, on Facebook by searching for Things Are About To Get Weird, or you can pop me an email at thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, a quick rating or review wherever you listen is always much appreciated. I'll be back on Wednesday with our next full-length episode, which I'm really excited for. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird for the good kind of weird. <laughs>